0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come, Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share
1: and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, Talkingscripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Helaman 1 through 6. Helaman is really kind of three parts. The first part of Helaman 1 through 6 introduces the secret combinations and the pattern of pride and some of the things happening in the culture of the Nephites. And Mormon's going to give a lot of commentary. He'll give a lot of historical narrative and a lot of commentary to say, hey, this is why this matters. Also, footnote, Helaman is kind of our day. We're going to talk about that. The 7th through the 11th chapter of Helaman is going to be Nephi's narrative. Nephi's going to be a prophet, and the Nephites are going to be in a state of sickness and decay. And he's going to stand up and say, hey, guys, we've got a problem, and we've got to fix this. And he's going to kind of clear out through the darkness and show the way. The 12th chapter is a lot of Mormon's commentary where he talks about how unstable man is. And then finally, the 13th through the 16th chapter of Helaman is going to be Samuel the Lamanite. Samuel the Lamanite is going to come to the Nephites because they're in a state of sin. And he's going to stand up and say, hey, you guys don't have a lot of time. He's even going to give them a time period of about six years to get ready for the sign that Yahweh or Jehovah or Jesus is going to come and be born in the flesh. And so there's really a three-part structure to the Book of Kielman, and we're going to be in the first part, the first six chapters in this podcast. And so with that brief introduction, Bryce, what do you see as the most important parts of these
0: six chapters? The brilliance of how the Book of Mormon is set up is that we worship a God of patterns. He is frequently showing us in the past what things will be like in the future. That's kind of his way. Um, If you want to know what things will be like at Adam on Diamond, well, there's already been a meeting at Adam on Diamond. Go study that one and it's a pattern of the one to come. If you want to know what things will be like in the second coming, then there's lots of patterns. Egypt is a pattern. Getting the children of Egypt, or children of Israel out of Egypt because of all the plagues and everything is like getting the righteous into the millennium. And so there are patterns. Well, the Book of Helaman is a marvelous pattern of our day. When we get into 3rd Nephi, you'll see that the coming of Jesus in the Book of Mormon, his first coming, is a very, very close pattern to his second coming to the world. So, for example, chapter 1 of 3rd Nephi is a great sign comes, and then there's a period of silence, and then destruction to the wicked, and then Jesus appears, and then they live in peace for many years, followed by war. So a great sign, silence, destruction, Jesus appears, peace, war. Now that's 3rd Nephi. But you might think I was describing the second coming because that's the same pattern that the Lord has declared is the second coming. There will be a great sign followed by silence, the destruction of the wicked, Jesus will come, a period of peace followed by war. The millennium will end in war. And so we're going to see that 3rd Nephi begins a pattern of the second coming. So If you have eyes to see, you would then ask yourself, well, what book then do we live in? Because we haven't seen the great sign, you know, the destruction isn't here. So what book of the Book of Mormon do we live in? If third Nephi is a pattern of the second coming, may I suggest that Helaman is a description of our day. These are what the days prior to the end look like. Helaman is the pattern of our day. And as you go through the first handful of chapters of Helaman, it kind of sets that up. The very things they deal with in Helaman are the very things we're going to deal with in our day. So, for example, chapters 1 and 4 describe the attacking Lamanites and war. But this isn't, I mean, yeah, we could probably look at that and say, yeah, war will be present in our day. I I think that's a no-brainer, but if we really push it, something happens in this war that never happened in Alma. The Lamanites do something in chapter 1 of Helaman and again in chapter 4 of Helaman that they never accomplished in Alma. They get all the way to Zarahemla. They conquer Zarahemla. They get all the way to the heart. So I think the pattern of our day is that in our day, there will be conflicts in the heart, meaning conflicts in our hearts, conflicts in our homes— Conflict's in the very center. Yes, there will be war from now till the second coming. That seems to be a pattern, but the idea here is look beyond that and realize that the challenge of our day is that there's going to be conflict in the heart, conflict between husband and wife, conflict between parents and children, conflict in the very center of where we congregate and how we live. And so the antidote to that problem is extremely intriguing to me. How do we solve conflict and war of the heart? Well, they're going to do that in Helaman, because not only will the book of Helaman say, here's the problem, but it will also point out, here's the solution. So we're going to do that today. That's going to be our focus today. How do we overcome conflicts of the heart? But then when you go to Helaman 2, another challenge that we'll talk about in our next podcast, and Helaman 2 is all about secret combinations, the forming of secret combinations, Verse 8, the object of secret combinations is to murder and rob and gain power. And so Mike and I will spend a lot of time in our next podcast talking about modern-day secret combinations whose goal is to murder and rob and gain power. And then what's the antidote? How do we overcome? Because in the book of Helaman… They find success against secret combinations.
1: I think that's what's beautiful about the Book of Mormon, Bryce, is it points out the problems, but it doesn't just lay out, here's the problem. It says, here's "Here's the solution.
0: Always, it always points to the solution. So if Helaman is a pattern of our day and we recognize similar problems, then we should be combing the pages of Helaman to find the solutions. And so we'll do that. What is the solution to secret combinations? And then chapter 3, it begins this, notice this pattern in 3. In verse 1, there was a little pride in the church, and then by the time we jump down to verse 33, there's pride that's growing, and then they're lifted up, and then by verse 36, there's exceedingly great pride. And so that's a pattern of, this is something that's going to be prevalent in your day, and this is a problem in the book of Helaman, overcoming the pride that comes from prosperity. So Helaman 3 will kind of introduce that, that they are becoming very prosperous, and then when they end the war and start trading with each other, their prosperity is going to go through the roof, and that's when the pride begins. And that's when Mormon will step in and give this entire chapter 12, which is his commentary on overcoming pride. So again, that will be next podcast, because the answer, the solutions, will come in the later chapters of Helaman. In our day, we're going to deal with conflict of the heart, wars of the heart, secret combinations, and prosperity that leads to great pride. Now, each one of those has an antidote in the book of Helaman. So let's start today. We're going to focus on wars of the heart, conflict of the very center of our society, our homes, our relationships, conflicts of the heart. So let's go back to chapter 1, a little brief history Starting in verse 14, the Lamanites had gathered together an innumerable army of men, and they're just going to go for broke. They're not going to fight the battles around the outside. They're going right to the heart. Notice who they're led by. They're led by this guy, Coriantumr. he's got this Jaredite
1: name. He's a dissenter, verse 15, a large and mighty man. And so he's going to lead him in, and it talks about how he stirs them up. They don't really want to go in at first, but Cori kind of says, Hey, we're going to go in. Verse 17, he says, We're going to go right into the land of Zarahemla, the very center. And verse 18 says, You know, they didn't really keep sufficient guards, probably because they have this huge internal uh, strife. They're killing the chief judge. This is it kind of sounds a lot like the war chapters, a lot it? like the war chapters, as if to say, Watch, this is a pattern that keeps repeating. I think Abraham Lincoln said it best when he said a nation divided against itself cannot stand. And I think uh, Lincoln was quoting Jesus in the Gospels, right? This idea that if we're fighting with ourselves, we don't have strength. In fact, that's going to be a theme in these chapters. There's a chapter in here where it says we have become weak over and over again. It's like a light word, continually repeated. And so it says that they marched right into the city in verse 20, and it even uses this phrase that uh, it came to pass that Coriantumur did smite him against the wall, their chief judge. And they take possession of the city in verse 22. And verse 27, I think, is the key where it says, the Lamanites were not frightened according to his
0: desire. They had come into the center of the land. Now, you got to pause here and see the symbolism. What the Lord is saying is if Helaman's a pattern of our day— evil is coming straight for the heart. Speedily, with all their forces, they're coming straight to the heart. Now, we kind of fight evil kind of on the periphery. We fight evil, you know, on the outside. We fight bad movies coming into our house, and so we have a tendency to say, well, I'm not going to let that movie come into my house. And that's how I fight evil. I think Helaman's trying to say, but he's coming right into your heart.
1: I think there's a pattern here also with the way we approach sin as a culture. If you think about the United States culture just in the last, say, 100 years, something that 50 or 70 years ago people would have said, that's just offensive. That is against the rules of society. Today, if you say, hey, that's wrong, people are going to say, well, What's wrong with you? And in other words, it's Isaiah again, where Isaiah says there'll be a day when they take light, and they call it darkness, and they call darkness light. And so they're coming right in the center. I also, I can't help but think about the family. The adversary is coming right at families today. And so that's a good way to read this. So in this chapter, they actually do kick out the Lamanites in chapter one.
0: Well, the Lamanites were so gung-ho about getting to the heart that they didn't realize that once they got into Zarahemla, they'd be completely surrounded. They were completely surrounded, and they didn't have any place to retreat, so the Nephites had them basically in a corner. So this time, the Nephites were successful at removing them. So they came to the heart, and the Lamanites couldn't go anywhere, and the Nephites were successful. Now, that sets up chapter 4, where they're going to do the exact same thing, but this time they have a plan, and they are prepared, yeah. and they, they and they stay. In in this chapter, Coriantumr is killed—
1: So the Lamanites' plans are just dashed. But you're right, Bryce, in the fourth chapter, it
0: doesn't work out. So now let's jump to four. So one, we kind of set up this idea that evil's coming after the heart, but we can be successful if we unite all of our other forces and go back and attack the evil that came to our heart. But then in chapter four, the whole thing changes. So again, verse 4 of chapter 4, they're again preparing for war. Verse 5, they did commence the work of death. They succeeded in obtaining possession of the land Zarahemla, and also all the lands, even unto the land which was near the land Bountiful. Now Bountiful's where the temple is. Bountiful seems to be a very sacred place. And so now they're coming right to Zarahemla, and they're approaching right into Bountiful. And this time the Nephites can't fight them off. And the reason they can't fight them off, remember what we talked about in the war chapters about the greatest preparation for war is to prepare your minds to be faithful to God, that righteousness is greater than armaments. When we do it the Lord's way, we get the Lord's help. Well, guess what? They've lost that. And so verse 11, now this great loss of the the Nephites and the great slaughter which was among them would not have happened had it not been for their wickedness and their abomination which was among them.
1: Notice verse 8, the dissenters of the Nephites with the help of a numerous army of the Lamanites had obtained all the possession of the Nephites, which was in the land southward. And so it's once again, their own infighting caused this problem. You know, reading verse 8 to me made me realize how great of a miracle it was that George Washington did what he did. Because when he was in New York, there were loyalists in New York that were helping the Redcoats. And I thought, I could never win that war. How is that even possible when your own people are
0: fighting against you? The quality of men and women that were in the United States fighting for independence, they had the Lord's help. They were doing it the Lord's No way way without it. No way without it. Yeah, no way. So verse 12, it was because of their pride, the pride of their hearts, because of their exceeding riches. It was because of their oppression to the poor, withholding their food from the hungry, withholding their clothing from the naked, and smiting their humble brethren upon the cheek making a mock of that which was sacred denying the spirit of prophecy revelation murdering plundering lying stealing committing adultery rising up in great contentions deserting away into the land of nephi among the lamanites verse 13 and because of this their great wickedness and their boastings in their own strength they were left in their own strength there's the principle there if you do it the lord's way you get the lord's help if you do it your way You are left to your own strength.
1: I got to tell you, Bryce, from a personal experience, I've experienced both. There have been times when I've tried to do something and I've been... Look at verse 26 and verse 24. The word is weak. Over and over again, it says that they have become weak. It reminds me of when Joseph was translating, and he got in a fight with Emma, and he just I, I, he couldn't translate, and he just prayed about it, and the Lord said, go apologize to your wife. And he went and walked in the orchard and apologized to her, and he came back later, and, and he had the strength of the Lord. And I personally can say, there have been times when I've just tried to teach a gospel lesson with just the, my own personality or my own strength but it's not the same as when the Holy Ghost is there. I mean, the Holy Ghost is the teacher. And so if you go in and the Spirit's with you, and it's just this marvelous experience, and I think missionaries see this all the time, and I think that's a big reason why in the mission field they say, hey, these rules that you keep will help you to have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, you know you can be successful. And so that word in there, that idea of being weak, or being left to their own strength, in verse 13. I think that everybody in this mortal experience, if we really search into our heart, can say, you know what, I've experienced both. There have been times when I've been, man, I've had this amazing strength, and we just give God the glory, and then there's times when we're like, "Ah, that was kind of weak. And in this case, it's life and death. Yeah. And in this chapter, Bryce, they're not successful in kicking them out.
0: No. Back in verse 9, Moroniah, who's now Mer- Captain Moroni's son, Moroniah, did succeed with his armies in obtaining many parts of the land. He regained many cities which had fallen into the hands of the Lamanites. And it came to pass in the sixty and first year, verse 10, that they succeeded in regaining half. They've got half back. Now, this is going to be absolutely critical to the point I think the Book of Mormon is trying to make. Moraniah with his army and his forces and the swords and everything, every weapon they had got half of them back. And then they fought for a while. Verse 18, Moraniah could obtain no more. And so verse 19, they give up. They abandoned their design to obtain the rest of their lands. They are content to live on half their land. And they let the Lamanites have the other half of their land because they cannot get it back. Verse 20, because of the greatness of the number of the Lamanites, the Nephites were in great fear, lest they should be overpowered and trodden down and slain and destroyed. Now, I remind you that the Lamanites outpowered them in the last war with Captain Moroni, but they had the Lord's help. So Helaman's starting to set this up. Now, this is the power. This is the message. What Moroniah cannot do with the sword, watch what happens in chapter 5. The Lamanites come in, attack the very heart, but the Nephites are weak. They are not living the gospel. Verse 22, they had altered and trampled under their feet the laws of Mosiah. And a lot of that's in the chapters
1: that we haven't covered, but this is where the infection of the Gadianton robbers kind of infects their culture. And one of the things that Gadianton's are teaching is that if I can accumulate more, we're back to this pride cycle, if I can accumulate more, then I'm better. And they want class distinctions. And the Nephites in this section of text are going to incorporate those values. And they're going to be described by Mormon as the more wicked part. And the Lamanites are going to say, you know, we're not doing this. And they're going to be described as the more righteous part. And so Mormon's really kind of showing how the tide of wickedness is sifting over towards the Nephites, and the Lamanites are becoming more righteous. And so that's in the chapters, like chapter 2 and 3 and 4. But the answer is like what Bryce says. Nephi is going to do something that Moroniha with the sword can't do. And notice verse 4 of chapter 5. Who does that remind you of? A guy who gives up the judgment seat to go preach the gospel. Reminds us of Alma, right? And then the light word in verse 6. Is there a word that pops up?
0: Yeah. right? The word is remember. Jumped out on verse 9 and verse 12. It's just, and again, you're going to start to see antidotes being presented to the problems that they face. So let's quickly go through this story. Because they're not living the gospel, chapter 4, verse 25, the Lord did cease to preserve them by his miraculous and matchless power. So if you live the Lord's way, you get the Lord's help. If you don't, then you're left to your own strength, which they have now seen their own strength is not enough to get their land back. Now watch what happens in chapter five. Nephi and his brother Lehi take it upon themselves to go solve this problem a different way, not with swords, not with scimitars, not with weapons of war. They go out with the greatest weapon of all. So starting in verse 14, they go forth. They go to Zarahemla. Now, let me remind you who lives in Zarahemla. It's occupied territory, and it's not just that the Lamanites live there. Who of all the Lamanites who lives in Zarahemla? It's the Lamanite warriors. Yeah. Now, typically, you would assume that the Lamanite warriors are the coldest, hardened people that fight to death. So, Zarahemla is filled with Lamanite warriors and dissenters from the Nephites. Verse 17, it came to pass that they did preach with great power, insomuch that they did confound many of those dissenters who had gone over from the, Laman, the Nephites. Now, we don't get this story. I don't know why. I can't wait to get this story. We're going to get another story. But the end result of this story is verse 19. So what Moroniah couldn't do with the sword, Nephi goes in there with faith and power and Holy Ghost and scriptures and eight thousand Lamanites who were in the land of Zarahemla and roundabout were baptized unto repentance. Now, those were Lamanite warriors. Now, do you see what the Lord's trying to say for our day? Now, let's get to the story he does want to tell. He doesn't tell us the fullness of that story. We don't get any of the details on how he converted 8,000, but we do get this very, very symbolic story. So in verse 20, he goes from Zarahemla down to the land of the Nephites, where the bulk of the Lamanites live. Now, this is the land of the Lamanites. This is where their wives, their children, this is where the government, this is where the bulk of the Lamanites live. And they take him and they throw him in prison, just what Lamanites typically do when Nephites come in. It's the same prison that Ammon and his brethren were cast into. So now they're in prison, and the bad guys come in to slay them. Verse 22, they come into the prison that they might slay them and Nephi and Lehi are encircled about by a fire. Now, you almost have to see this. There's some beautiful paintings of this. Nephi and Lehi are surrounded by light. The prophet is surrounded and protected by light. And when they saw that, their hearts did take courage. Simultaneously, verse 28, what's going on to the people who sought their lives, that sought harm, that the people who sought to destroy the prophet? Verse 28, they were overshadowed by a cloud of darkness, and an awful, solemn fear came upon them. Now, if this is a pattern of our day, may I suggest that we live in a society where there is light and darkness, that there are those who are encircled about by light, and then there are those who are overshadowed with a cloud of darkness. And those moments in all of our lives when we are overshadowed with a cloud of darkness results in awful solemn fear. So a voice comes and they don't really understand the voice, but then in one of the most symbolic moments in the Book of Mormon, one of my absolute favorite gems of the Book of Mormon is verse 36. Standing there in a cloud of darkness, filled with awful, solemn fear, something came through the darkness. Something shined through the darkness. Helaman chapter five, verse 36 is such a symbolic verse, it is my witness that no matter what happens in the latter days, no matter how much of a darkness may gather above us, no matter how much awful, solemn fear may fill our hearts, the face of the prophet will always shine through the darkness. You will always see that glimmer of light and hope. And as soon as they do that, they ask a question. Verse 40, It's a question that we hope everyone in the world today asks, everyone who is in the shadow of darkness asks, what shall we do that this cloud of darkness may be be removed from overshadowing us? And the answer is the same answer that's been given from the beginning of time. Verse 41, you must repent. You must repent and cry unto the voice, even until you have faith in Christ. Notice, you don't have faith and then cry unto God. You cry unto God until you have it. Crying unto God will strengthen your faith. You must repent and cry unto the voice even until you have faith. Verse 41 When you shall do this, the darkness shall be removed. Now, they do it. To their credit, they repent. They begin to cry unto the voice. Now, this is beautiful symbolism. Verse 46 the cloud of darkness was dispersed. As soon as they repented, the cloud of darkness was dispersed. And then they were within the circle of fire. They had been engulfed. They had been brought in to the circle. Whenever an awful solemn fear rests upon you, look to the prophet. Look to the gospel. Live that way. The gospel always has the answer to every situation you're in. And if you live it that way, the darkness disperses and you are brought into the light. And then verse 44, they were filled with that joy, which is unspeakable and full of glory. Verse 45, the Holy Ghost did come down from heaven and did enter into their hearts. This is beautiful symbolism for our day. See the face of the prophet. He represents the gospel and everything that God has asked us to do. And if you will repent, the darkness is dispersed, you are pulled into the light, joy fills your heart, and then the the Holy Ghost. And by the
1: way, they get what they want. So Mormon's commentary here is, he says, well, the whole point of this was their land was taken, half their land is gone. And so if you go to verse 50, it says, "...they did go forth and minister unto the people, declaring throughout all the regions round about all the things which they had heard and seen." And the Lamanites were convinced of them because of the greatness of the evidences which they had received. And as many as were convinced did lay down their weapons of war, and then verse 52, they did yield up the Nephites the lands of their possession. So what they couldn't get with the sword, they got with the word of God. There's a lot of application here, isn't there, Bryce? Yeah, I mean, so
0: much for our day.
1: A lot of people listening to this podcast are married, and maybe you've had times where you've been at war with your spouse, or you've been at war with your children, or maybe in today's, especially if you live in North America, there's a lot of fraction happening culturally, and, and parents and children fighting, or siblings fighting. And so what is an application that you see here, Bryce, when we're, we're surrounded with war, when, what is the message of this chapter?: When that you the would war
0: say? comes to your heart, the answer is always the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer is always to see the gospel shining through the darkness. So the, in those moments where you're kind of at war with your spouse, what does the gospel teach? I think instantly about the nine principles in the proclamation. Successful families are built upon these nine principles, and the first two are tied together and tie us to God. It's faith and prayer. You've got to get God in your relationship, but notice the next two. It's repentance and forgiveness. So what would the gospel have you do in those moments where maybe you're at war with your spouse? The
1: thought comes to me, maybe I don't wait for my spouse to say sorry, but I say sorry. I take my weapons of war and I bury them first.
0: And there it is. The gospel is always the answer. You lay down your weapons of war. You lay down the weapons of your rebellion and you seek peace and you do what Jesus taught. And you be the one that solves it. You be the one that fixes the problem.
1: It's interesting to me, too, that this whole—their land was taken, half their land, and yet there were only 300 people in that prison that went and shared. And so another message I see here, Bryce, is that the message of one person can have rippling effects. Just as 300 people, but they were people of prominence. I think that even—like— Once again, we're back to names. I'm going to geek out here really quick on Amenadab. He's the guy in chapter 5 who stands up and says, Oh, you want to know who this Lehi and Nephi character are? Well, verse 39, he says, "Uh, They're conversing with the angels of God, you guys. And then notice what happens. The Lamanites are like, Well, what are we supposed to do? And Amenadab's like, well, I'll tell you, verse forty-one. You've got to repent, and you've got to. And it seems as if Amenadab knows the gospel. And I think in here, Bryce, r- remind me, isn't he one of those dissenters?
0: Yeah, I'm trying to remember because, what
1: verse is that in.
0: Remember, they're they're down among the Lamanites, verse thirty-five. There was one among them who was a Nephite by birth. There we go. Who had once belonged to the Church of God, but had dissented yeah. from them. So this Amenadab is a dissenter now.
1: If Aminadab's name has Hebrew roots, which I think it does, um, you've got Am, which is my people, and Nadav, which is generous or giving. It's almost like a royal name. Like, my people are generous. Why would that be in there? Why wouldn't Mormon just say there was this guy, but he gives you his name? I think it's because Amenadab came from people that were once generous, that were once a beautiful people. I mean, how many times does Mormon do this later where he's like, my people were delightsome, they were beautiful, they were blessed, they were Nadab, they were generous, but he kind of fell off the path. This commentary is by John Butler, and he he writes this. He says, it's striking that Amenadab is also the name of Boaz's great-grandfather an ancestor of the Judahite kings. Amenadab is a perfect name for a Nephite estranged from his father's faith who resumes a priestly role in a moment of crisis. If the Nephites know the kings of Judah as men who have once been Melchizedek priests but have fallen away, otherwise the name just doesn't seem very noteworthy. The description of his background emphasizes both Amenadab's Nephite birth and his former membership in the church. Presumably, whoever compiled Helaman 5 in the form in which we have it saw the name Amenadab in his record recognized it as a Judahite royal name and made sure to include it in the record noting Amenadab's birth and his personal apostasy to emphasize the implied parallel now i think that's important i think also when someone has truth spoken to them and they dissent it's still in there The seeds of goodness are still in there. And think about this. If Amenadab doesn't play that role, I don't think the
0: story plays out the way it plays out. And it's fascinating that the word remember comes up so much in chapter 5. You've got to remember, Amenadab, the goodness of your people. You've got to remember. We've got to remember God in our life
1: because you've walked away. And sometimes you don't have to do too much preaching. Just be you. If it's a child who's estranged, you just be that loving mom or dad, and that will bring out their remembrance. There's another thing happening here, and it's this idea of darkness and shaking and a voice and two witnesses and this message from heaven. And if you want to have a really neat experience with Helaman 5, just crack open Revelation 11. And in Revelation 11, there's some of this happening. So this is a last day's parallel. John is measuring the temple in the first couple of verses, and this has to do with measurements of sacred space, but it also has to do with time. In verse 2, it talks about 40 and 2 months, which is three and a half years of this wickedness. And then notice there's these two witnesses, verse four, two olive trees and fires coming out of their mouth. I don't take this literal. I take this as the words of God and they have power to shut heaven. Now we're going to see that in the next podcast. We're going to see the idea of famine as a way of God trying to bring us back to him. And their testimony is bringing people to God. And so Revelation eleven is really interesting because we have the earth shaking, we have a voice from heaven, we have darkness, all of this stuff happening in Helaman five. And it's as if it's another witness to this idea that God's gonna send multiple witnesses. In matters of life and death, salvation is tied in witnesses. Deuteronomy nineteen fifteen, Deuteronomy seventeen, six, Numbers thirty five, thirty. In matters of life and death, you've got to have two witnesses. And these guys are witnesses. And so anyway, that's another way to look at this text, is it's a type of God bringing people home. And I can't help but read it also and think, the Lord sends out missionaries two by two. I see that as also kind of embedded
0: in Helaman 5. So now watch what happens. I'm going to jump to the end of chapter 6. So we've got something happening among the Nephites and something happening among the Lamanites simultaneously. And I love the description here. Now, after what Nephi and Lehi have done... Go to the very end of chapter 6 and watch this progression. Let's start with the Nephites, because I think we could make the tie to our day. Starting in verse 34, the Nephites began to dwindle in unbelief. They began to question. That word dwindle is, is intriguing to me. Now, if you dwindle in unbelief, notice what happens next. They grow in wickedness. And then jump down to verse 35, the Spirit of the Lord began to withdraw, Now, if you lose the Holy Ghost, notice verse 38. It came to pass that, on the other hand, the Nephites did build them up. So we're talking about Gadianton robbers. The Nephites did build them up and support them. And end of verse 38, they did partake of their spoils and did join with them. Now, the Gadianton robbers are very similar to the world today. If you begin to question, if you begin to dwindle in unbelief, doubt, You let your doubts into your heart, and you don't humbly do what the Lamanites are doing. If you dwindle in unbelief, it often leads to growing in wickedness, which leads to the loss of the Holy Ghost, and now you're building up, supporting, partaking, and joining the the people of the world. Now contrast that with the Lamanites. In these very same verses, notice in verse 36 the Lord did pour out His Spirit among the Lamanites because of their easiness and willingness to believe in His words. There's where it starts. An easiness and a willingness to believe in the Lord's words. If you are willing to believe, jump back to verse 34, notice that the Lamanites began to grow exceedingly in the knowledge of their God. If you are willing to be taught by God, if you want to, If you make it easy for God to teach you, then you will grow exceedingly in the knowledge of God. And then back to verse 36, the Spirit will be poured out upon you. Now, notice what they do to the Gadianton robbers in verse 37. Instead of supporting them like the Nephites and joining them, what do the Lamanites do to the Gadianton robbers?
1: They hunt them down.
0: They hunt them down and preach the word of God among them, insomuch that this band of robbers was utterly destroyed from among the Lamanites.
1: There might be like a a punning going on with hunting them down. They're either physically coming after them or they're hunting them down to preach. I see Mormon doing lots of punning in these chapters. By the way, Gadianton is a pun. Those of you that love the 12 tribes of Israel, Gad's one of the tribes. And Gad means to be blessed or fortunate, but it also means troop. And so you kind of take that word for Gadianton and you get a bunch of different meanings. You get this reduplication here. If you take the word Gedud and you add an eem to it, you get bandits or troops or a good fortune or troops in the sense of distributing loot or bounty. And so even the name Gadianton kind of has embedded in it this idea of getting booty or a band of robbers. Ish Gedudim is the band of robbers or band of guys that are taken stuff. And so there's a lot of punning going on here, obviously is lost to us as English readers. And we don't have the plate text. If we had the plate text, we could say, okay, this is a Sumerian root or this is Hebrew or whatever. But even Kishkumen has some cool stuff in it. So Kishkumen's this bad guy and th- the names can be good or bad, but cumin, the part of the kish Kishkumen part, the cumin part, even is where we get that spice, it was preserved. And the the word, even in the Greek and in the Hebrew, is this idea of preserving or hiding. And so what is Kishkuman doing? He's preserving or hiding, and he's associating with the Gedudim or the Gadiantins and they're a troop of guys hiding out in the wilderness doing stuff. So anyway, there's some punning going on here. And I even see that in verse 37 that Bryce just read, that they hunted him down, but then they preached to them. And we don't really think that way, but even there's that verse in Jeremiah, right, where they're going to hunt him out and fish him out of the holes of the rocks, and so... Anyway, Mormon is a pun master, and I I like to say that the scriptures are full of dad jokes, and so verse 37 is a great dad joke. That's just my little geek out moment there.
0: Now, chapter 6 sets up for next week where because the war ends, because they're no longer physical enemies and they don't necessarily sleep with one eye open and a sword underneath their bed, the Lamanites aren't going to attack them anymore. Now they can trade with them. And because they can now trade with them, man, they're going to get rich. So verse 9, they became exceedingly rich. They had exceedingly plenty, all manner of precious metals. Verse 12 of chapter 6, they did raise grain in abundance. They did flourish exceedingly. They did multiply and wax exceedingly strong. They did raise many flocks. Verse 13, fine twine linen and cloth. And then verse 17, the Lord had blessed them so long with the riches of the world that they had not been stirred up to anger or wars or bloodshed. Therefore, they began to set their hearts upon their riches.
1: couple thoughts. Go to the second chapter. So while the Kishkumen people and the Gadianton band, they're putting together their signs, verse 11. When Gadiatan found that Kishkuman did not return, because Kishkuman goes to kill Helaman and and he can't do it, and he he gets killed. Uh, Kishkuman dies in verse 9 of Helaman 2. And so Gadiatan is waiting and he's waiting and Kishkuman doesn't show up and it says, He feared lest he should be destroyed, therefore he caused that his band should follow him. And they took their flight out of the land by a secret way into the wilderness. And thus when Helaman sent forth to take them, they could nowhere be found. And then Mormon writes, And more of this Gadiaton shall be spoken hereafter. And thus ended the forty and second year of the reign of the judges. And behold, Mormon says, In the end of this book you shall see that this Gadiaton did prove the overthrow, yea, almost the entire destruction of the people of Nephi. Now, I do not mean the end of the book of Helaman, but I mean the end of the book of Nephi. Now, what he's talking about is the plates, the large plates, but which I have taken all the account from which I have written. And so Mormon is kind of foreshadowing here. He's like, hey, these Gadians are going to be a big deal. It's a clan. It's a guild. It's a group of people, these troops, and they're seeking power. And this is just the beginning. They're going to end up overthrowing this whole system of people that believe in Yahweh. We're going to see this pop up again in Mormon 2 and 3, where the Gadians just infest the land. And the people that are good, they leave. They move out. And so go to chapter 3. Chapter three is all this stuff that, you know, in this podcast, Bryce and I don't we're not going to force you or be dogmatic about some of these historical things. And so we'll put this in the show notes. I'm going to put the main two models of where we think this happened, the Heartland model and the Mesoamerican model. And I think Bryce and I, in a couple of our podcasts have mentioned, you know, we don't necessarily agree. I'm more of a Mesoamerican guy.
0: And I'm much more of a Heartland guy. I think the Book of Mormon occurred in the promised land of the United States of America.
1: And I'm, you know, I'm leaning towards Mesoamerica. Now, I don't care. I to me, I really think that one day
0: we'll know. One day we will know all these answers. And and the reality is it doesn't matter where it occurred. What matters is that what was written was written to change our lives.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. But the Book of Mormon happened somewhere. And so there's a bunch of stuff in these chapters that has to do with physical locations. And so what I want to do is just briefly talk about it without alienating half our listening audience. Like if you're a Heartland person, I don't want you to walk out of here and be like, well, I'm not going to listen to Mike because he's an idiot. He's talking about Mesoamerica. But if you're a Mesoamerican person, I also don't want to alienate you or make you think you have the superior view of the Book of Mormon. So all that being said, notice what happens. The people leave. There's so many of what I call the good guys of the Nephite culture that go northward. And the verse I really want you to take note of is verse 11 and 12. It says, They did enable the people in the land northward that they might build cities, both of a wood and cement. And it came to pass there were many of the people of Ammon who were Lamanites by birth, and they did go out of this land. The anti-Nephi-Lehi, the people that were Lamanites that Ammon had converted, these good people, they leave. And they just take off. Now, this is a foreshadowing of Mormon 2. If you go there, look at this. In Mormon 2, it's about 350 AD. So we're like way in the future, but this is Mormon's day. And it says, my heart, this is Mormon 2, verse 27. My heart did sorrow because of the great calamity of my people, because of their wickedness and their abominations. But behold, we did go forth against the Lamanites and the robbers of Gadianton. So in the Helaman narrative, the Gadianton robbers are taking root ...amongst the Nephite culture, but in Mormon's day, they've taken root in the Lamanite culture. But he sees them in both. But in his day, it's more among the Lamanites. And it says, "...until we had again taken possession of lands of our inheritance, and the 349th year passed away, and we made a treaty with the Lamanites and the robbers of Gadianton, in which we did get the lands of our inheritance divided. And the Lamanites did give unto us the land northward... Yea, even to the narrow passage which led to the land southward. And we did give the Lamanites all the land southward. I call that the 350 AD Treaty. That treaty is how they're able to maintain peace. And over and over again, we read that the Nephites are going north. They just keep leaving and leaving. And I think embedded in this of Helaman and in Mormon too, is this idea of what do you do if you're in a place and it's just getting
0: too toxic? What do you do? And there's not one right answer. No, no. It's like sometimes you leave, but sometimes you stay. I'm grateful that Melchizedek stayed in Salem because he made a difference. Sometimes you need to stay and you need to make a difference among the culture because how many times has the Lord said, it's because of the righteous that I'm preserving this society. If the righteous leaves, then what hope do we have? But sometimes it's so toxic that you just, I'm taking my family and I'm leaving two weeks ago where we talked about when is conflict justified. And the idea there was if you live the Lord's way, if you abide by the Lord's rules, then you get the Lord's help and he prospers us according to our circumstances. In other words, the Lord will help you know when to stay and the Lord will help you know when to flee. And when do we go north? Because there's there's peace and prosperity up there. And when do we stay There was a time when we told everyone that joined the church, go to the center of the church, go to Nauvoo, go to Kirtland, Ohio, and even for a while it was go to Salt Lake City. But now we say, no, don't go. Don't go to where the church is. Stay and build up the church and make it strong where you are. So there is a time to gather with the righteous, and there is a time to stay. As this message comes up, I think that's important to talk about, that you need to do what is best for your family circumstances. Sometimes it gets so bad that you need to leave. You pull your kid out of school because the environment is just toxic. Or sometimes you teach your child how to make an influence in the school. And if you do it the Lord's way, you will get the Lord's help, and He will prosper you according to your circumstances.
1: So good. I, I have a friend who his son got involved in drugs, and he literally said to me, I'm willing to move my family. I'll move heaven and earth to save my son. And I thought, that's a father who's really dedicated to his son and his success. And I think in this case, I think there's some of that happening. The anti-Nephi-Lehites, they see this Gadiantonism rising up, and they're like, we're out of here. And I think, Bryce, there's so much that could be said about Helaman 312, and it's just like one verse. And then in the next verse, Mormon says, Oh, by the way, there's a ton of records. I'm not even touching. And then verse 14, a hundredth part, I'm not even telling you. And so, in other words, Mormon has all this stuff and he's like, Oh, there's so much, but I just I'm I'm trying to stick to my message. That's one of the things he's saying is These guys leave, and I really do think it's because they see it just gets too toxic for them. Now, that being said, I want to geek out just on this for a moment. Go to the fourth chapter, when they're talking about taking possession of their lands. Back in Helaman, or are you still in Mormon? Yeah, we're in Helaman 4. So it talks about in verse 5 that they succeeded in obtaining possession of the land of Zarahemla. And then it talks about in verse 6, the Nephites and the armies of Moronah were driven even to the land of Bountiful... And then it says this, There they did fortify against the Lamanites from the West Sea even to the east, it being a day's journey for a Nephite, on the line which they had fortified and stationed their armies to defend their north country. There seems to be in the Book of Mormon this this specific location that was defensible, that separating the land of the Lamanites from the land of the Nephites, there was this, sometimes they'll call it a pass, Sometimes they'll call it the line of fortification, but it was a way for them to control the Lamanites and kind of keep them in their space so the Nephites had their space. And there's a lot of ink spilled on this. And so what I want to talk about is how this relates to Alma 22. Look in Alma 22, verse 32. It was only the distance of a day and a half's journey for a Nephite on the line bountiful and the line desolation from the east to the west sea. And thus the land of Nephi and the land of Zarahemla were nearly surrounded by water, there being a small neck of land between the land northward and the land southward. And it came to pass that the Nephites had inhabited the land bountiful, even from the east unto the west sea. And thus the Nephites in their wisdom with their guards and their armies hemmed in the Lamanites on the south, that thereby they should have no more possession on the north, That they might not overrun the land northward. Therefore, the Lamanites could have no more possession only in the land of Nephi and the wilderness roundabout. And so the Lamanites are in the land south, the Nephites are in the land north, and there seems to be this bottleneck or this choke point where they were able to defend themselves. Now, what does this have to do with anything? Like I said, there's lots of models that you can read on possible locations. But I found this very interesting commentary by Joseph Allen where he said, What if this whole description in here is put in Mormon to teach a spiritual message? And you might ask yourself, what does geography have to do with a spiritual message? Here's what Joseph Allen says. Does it seem like Mormon would interrupt this message, this spiritual message in Alma 22, to talk about geography if it were not for the purpose of driving home the message of repentance and the redemption of Christ? In the context of Mormon's writing, we understand that the land of Nephi, which was taken over by the Lamanites, represented evil, and that the land of Zarahemla, the new promised land to the 200 B.C. Nephites, represented good. When the two Nephite colonies of Limhi and Alma returned to Zarahemla, they were received by King Mosiah with open arms. These events may be likened unto us when we return repentant to God, who will receive us with open arms. But our desire is to go to the land bountiful, which represents paradise or eternal life, as opposed to going to the land of desolation, which represents death and hell. You will notice that even the animals left the land northward, the land of desolation, to get food that was available in the land southward, the land of bountiful. Both Zarahemla and Nephi and bountiful and desolation are separated by, quote, that which is narrow. That is, Nephi was separated from Zarahemla by a narrow strip of wilderness, and Bountiful was separated from desolation by a narrow neck of land. This analysis is reminiscent of the scripture where we are told that whosoever will lay their hand upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil, may lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across that everlasting gulf of misery which is prepared to engulf the wicked, Helaman 3.29. Just think about that for a minute. We have two groups of people, and they're separated by this narrow pass, a narrow neck, a narrow passage, a fortification of a line. And the way you cross over and enter into the Nephite society is you make those covenants that make you a Nephite. The Lamanites are totally allowed to come into their culture, but they have to subscribe to the things that the Nephites do. They have to believe in Jehovah. They have to repent. They have to be part of this, what we call the egalitarian ideal, where everybody has access to the things that they have, and there's not this class distinctions and those kinds of things. And the Gadeans want to wreck that. And so I really like Joseph Allen's commentary, regardless of whatever model that you have. As readers of the Book of Mormon, we just don't have a lockdown exactly where this took place. Whatever it ends up being, I'm fine with. But I think to Mormon, he lived in the real world, and so he's putting some of this stuff in here. And part of me, this is just me, but part of me thinks maybe the reason we don't know is because it would negate faith. If we had this lockdown and we had all of this stuff figured out, um, it would kind of intellectually compel us to believe. I really like that in Helaman seven, and some of the commentary in there about the good guys leaving. I think this is setting us up for this context or for this idea of what it means to be ripe. Because notice what Mormon says. He says they're dwindling, and they began to get ripe. And in the Book of Mormon, Bryce, don't you think that ripe? When they're ripe, it's when over half, when the majority of the people are
0: choosing wickedness, they're ripe. Kind of goes back to what Mosiah said when they went from a king to a more democratic form of government. If the time shall come when the majority are wicked, then are they ripe for destruction? And there's a message for us there. And I would just suggest you ponder this week that the answer is always the gospel. May I suggest that if you are financially struggling, that you consider the gospel's solutions. There are many solutions in the gospel that seem counterproductive that the world would disagree with. How in the world is that? Paying your tithing doesn't seem to make sense to people, but it's a financial strategy. The answer is always the Lord's solution. When you are trying to do it Moroniah's way with the sword and you're not succeeding, would you remember this lesson? Would you see the face of the prophet shining through the darkness? And would you live the Lord's way and repent and cry unto the voice and be filled with the Holy Ghost? And then it's so much easier to succeed at the very things we couldn't succeed at on our own. Isn't that the definition of grace? That we have power to do what we couldn't do if left to ourselves. I love this antidote. I love this portion of the Book of Mormon because it is an antidote for our day.
1: I I really like this idea. We've really set up what's going to happen in the next few chapters in Helaman, where we talk more about pride and how the secret combinations play out, and what Nephi's role is in this, and then how Samuel comes and says, Man, you guys... Knock it off. And so that's going to be the next couple of podcasts in Helaman. And with that, we thank
0: you for listening and have a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.